If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 34. As I was uh, preparing for this message, I've told multiple people that um, this is probably the most emotionally um, strenuous, emotionally draining sermon I've ever prepared for. And it's not because it was an unnaturally difficult sermon to prepare. Um, it was more so because of the content uh, of the message itself. As we sit here and are preparing for, as Duane said, this Holy Week, uh, as we're preparing for the day that we long for and love, Resurrection Sunday, uh, we need to take the time to reflect on Jesus' death. Uh, and the some 20 hours or so that I put into that um, was very taxing emotionally. Um, and you'll get a small picture of that this morning, um, I hope. Uh, so go ahead and, and turn with me uh, to Mark, again, 15. I'll begin by reading the, the passage here, verse 15 through 34. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, saying, or wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, we come to uh, consider this morning 
the death of your son. And Lord, as we do, I'm just praying that we can leave this place with greater thankfulness and gratitude to Jesus for what he endured for us. So move in this way as we consider the sufferings of Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen. What kind of death do you deserve? Have you ever thought about that before? Taken time to meditate on the death that you deserve? I think that we don't often consider this question because we don't like to meditate on our sin and the consequences that they deserve. But it is a question that we should not ignore. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. A couple times this morning you saw that reflected in some of the scripture that was read. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? Scripture repeatedly connects our sin with Jesus' death. And not only this, it also connects the kind of death that we deserve with the death that Jesus died in our place. When we think about this reality, we can very easily look at this narrative and place ourselves where Jesus was. Indeed, I think that this is what we ought to do when we read the narrative. Understanding that Jesus has died in our place, what the Bible is saying is that you deserve to be here. And so what I want to do this morning as we look through the narrative is to try to grasp the kind of death that we as sinners deserve. So let's first begin by considering that we deserve a painful death. Verse 15 says this, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In this verse, we see two of the most painful elements of Jesus' death, the scourging or the flogging and the crucifixion itself. Now, Mark simply makes reference to these two things. He doesn't go into detail to describe them. And the reason why he doesn't do that is because the people who he was writing to would have known what both of these things entailed. They would have been able to conjure up images of what scourging meant or crucifixion meant from seeing it happen, maybe and probably even seeing it happen to Jesus himself. But we, not having that background, if we choose, we can shelter ourselves from the horrors of what Jesus went through. Now, I don't think that it's helpful for us to do that. So what I've done here is compiled some historical uh, references and other biblical references to try to put the pieces together to see what Jesus truly suffered here. I will give you a warning that some of what I've accumulated is graphic in language. Flogging, or scourging, was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths, in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. 
for scourging, the man was stripped of his clothes and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the soldiers and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bone would cut into the skin and internal tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. On the number of lashes a victim would receive, commentator Mark Strauss says this, The Jews limited scourging to 40 lashes, but the Romans had no such limitation. Now ultimately, we don't know how many lashes Jesus actually received, but when Isaiah prophesies of Jesus' death, he speaks about his appearance being so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form so marred beyond human likeness. What Isaiah is saying is that Jesus was so horrifically beaten that when you looked at him, he didn't look like a human being. You couldn't recognize that he was actually a human Now, Mark not only speaks here of the flogging of Jesus, but of his crucifixion as well. And again, gives us no details, so we'll try to put the pieces together. On the practical side of what crucifixion involved, the Romans perfected crucifixion as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. It was customary for the condemned man to carry his own cross from the flogging post to the site of crucifixion outside the city walls. At the site of execution, the criminal was thrown to the ground on his back with his arms outstretched along the crossbar. The hands would be nailed or tied to the crossbar, but nailing was apparently preferred by the Romans. Next, the feet were fixed to the cross either by nails or ropes. Now we know that the biblical text tells us that Jesus' hands and feet were nailed. So this was the practical side of what would happen to somebody when they were crucified. But not only this, we need to consider what would happen to this person's body as they suffered there. When the victim was thrown to the ground on his back in preparation for transfixion of his hands, his scourging wounds would most likely be torn open again and contaminated with dirt. Furthermore, with each respiration, the painful scourging wounds would be scraped against the rough wood of the post. The crucial effect of crucifixion, beyond the excruciating pain, was a marked interference with normal breathing, particularly exhalation. 
Adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows and pulling the shoulders inward. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the bones in the feet and would produce searing pain. Now, this same author goes on to state that the two most probable deaths by crucifixion are organ failure due to blood loss or slow suffocation due to an inability to breathe properly. This is part of the painful death that Jesus died for us. Now, Mark makes mention of one other thing that we need to consider before we move on. Jump down to verse 23. Mark says, as they were walking out to crucify him, that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why does Mark add this, and why is it pertinent to the painfulness of Jesus' death? Scholars acknowledge that wine mixed with myrrh served as a narcotic to dull the senses of the victim to the pain that they would endure, both in the scourging and in the crucifixion itself. But we see Jesus refuse it. And I believe that Jesus' refusal to receive the narcotic shows that he was completely committed to being fully conscious and enduring fully the pain that we deserve. He wasn't willing to make it any less than what it should be. As sinners, we deserve a painful death. But not only this, we also deserve a humiliating death. And this is the second thing that we will consider and verse 16 begins a section that Mark records here of the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus. Verse 16 says that the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace. This was after he had been scourged. And they called together the whole battalion, it says. Now I did some research there and a battalion was about 600 Roman soldiers. If you want to compare that to the room we're sitting in, if you were to add about 100 chairs to this room and fill every chair, that would be about the size of crowd that was gathered here to mock Jesus. The Romans are setting the stage for a public humiliation of Christ. And the humiliation begins with them mocking his kingship in verses 17 and 18. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. In verse 19, we see them also bowing down in homage to him. So we see them clothe him with royal apparel. A purple cloak, the color purple was royal in nature in those times. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Mocking his claim to kingship. Not only this, they also degrade his humanity in verse 19. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him 
and kneeling down in homage to him. I want to focus here for a moment on the soldiers spitting on Jesus. Not too long ago, I was listening to a sports show and they were debating of the penalty that the NBA had given to a player for spitting on another player. And to make his case, one of the debaters said this. He said, my grandfather once told me, boy, the most humiliating thing you can do to someone is spit on them. He said, you spit on the ground. If someone spits on you, they are telling you you are worse than the ground. They think that little of you. Have you ever been spit on by somebody? Not like by your kids and they do it on accident, like intentional, right? Somebody with malice seeking to offend you, spit on you. It's degrading, isn't it? It's humiliating. But what the Romans failed to recognize is that Jesus was not just human. He was God wrapped in the flesh. So what we see here is the creator. The one who formed man out of the dust of the ground. Being spit on by his creation. That's humiliating. This closes the section of the Roman mocking of Jesus. But yet there's more that Mark goes on to show us here. We see the mocking or the, the humiliation of the crucifixion itself. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now we've already considered the painful reality of the crucifixion, but there was an, also an immensely humiliating reality to it. We see here that Mark says in verse 27 that he was crucified with two robbers. Crucifixion was one of the most humiliating ways that you could possibly die. One writer puts it this way, crucifixion was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually was reserved for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. Hence the two robbers that were to the right and the left of Jesus. Imagine if you can for a moment. Imagine being beaten, stripped of your clothes, with your mangled body nailed to a tree that would be elevated for all to see. And those who pass by staring at you begin to mock you as you slowly suffocate and die. Can you think of a more humiliating way to die? I can't. The humiliation continues. Not only do we see the Roman mocking of Jesus and the humiliation of the crucifixion itself, but we also see the Jews begin to mock Jesus as he is hanging on the cross. Verse 29. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Now, Mark makes mention of two different people groups here that mock Jesus. The first he doesn't identify, and the second he identifies as the chief priests and the scribes. Now, based on what this first group of people say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, it seems plausible to me that these were Jewish people, that they were common Jews. Because Mark then goes on to differentiate the chief priests and scribes from them. Why is this important? If these were common Jews who were mocking Jesus, they were most likely, or very likely, to be some of the people that Jesus himself engaged with in his earthly ministry. Perhaps people that Jesus healed that Jesus showed compassion towards, that Jesus preached the gospel to. And yet here we see them mocking Jesus as he dies. The second group that Mark identifies is the religious leaders of the Jewish people at the time, the chief priests and scribes. Not only did the Romans mock Jesus, but his own people reviled him. The people that were supposed to receive him as the Messiah are here humiliating him and reviling him as he dies on the cross. Now at this point, we're probably left thinking, could this humiliation be any worse? Mark shows us that it can Second half of verse 32 says this. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The two people who were hanging on the cross to the right and to the left of Jesus, criminals, the lowest of the low in society, mocking Jesus. When we take the humiliation of Christ represented here in Mark's gospel as a whole, we see something very interesting. We see these three people groups that are mocking Jesus. When scripture differentiates between people groups, it typically speaks about two categories of people. You have the Jews, God's chosen people, and you have everyone else, most often referenced as Greeks. And what do we see here in the humiliation of Jesus? We see the Romans who are humiliating him, and they represent the world, the Greeks. We have the Jews, both the commoners and the religious elites, mocking Jesus. Jesus' own people, the Jews. And then we see these two criminals, the lowest of the low in society. I think that what Mark is seeking to show us is that in a very real way, the entire world has come to mock and humiliate Jesus in his death. 
representatively speaking, all the parties are there. As sinners, we deserve a painful and humiliating death. But this is not all. We also deserve a deserting death. And we see this in verses 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus experiencing on the cross? I don't think that we will fully know on this side of eternity. But Mark gives us a couple insights to show us a little bit of what Jesus was experiencing. The first thing Mark points to in verse 33 is the fact that darkness fell over the whole land beginning at the sixth hour until the ninth. Now, what we need to know is that in Scripture, darkness is a sign of God's judgment, and light is a sign of his blessing. Considering light being a sign of his blessing, the most common Israelite prayer of blessing asks God to make his face shine upon us. That's what it asks God to do. Make your face shine upon us. God's blessing is poetically shown to be like the light of the sun that shines. Considering the opposite of darkness, when God judged Egypt for enslaving his people, what was the ninth plague just before the angel of death came and took the firstborns? The ninth plague was darkness a sign of God's judgment on Egypt. Now Mark tells us here that the darkness lasted for three hours, which would have been from noon until 3 p.m., which were the last three hours that Jesus was on the cross. Now astrologists recognize that it was impossible for there to be a natural eclipse of the sun during this time of the year and for that long of a period. So we're left to believe that this darkness was a divine action from God. Miraculous, as it were. What then are we to make of this darkness? I think R.C. Sproul says it best. It was in this time that God turned away the light of his countenance refusing for the first time to gaze upon his son as he carried the full measure of the pollution of our wickedness and obscenity God is too holy to behold. The darkness is a supernatural display of the wrath of God coming upon Jesus for our sin and of his turning his face away from his son. His removal of the blessing of his son. 
Now Mark goes on to tell us what Jesus felt at the climax of this period of darkness. He says that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we must realize is that Jesus was truly for a time deserted by his Father. We understand that sin causes a separation relationally between us and God. Jesus bore that separation as he bore our sins on the cross. A separation was made in the perfect relationship between Jesus and the Father. For the first time ever, something came between Jesus and God. And this was the moment that Jesus was most afraid of. Well, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, what did he pray? He prayed for this cup that the Father had for him to drink, that it would be removed from him, if at all possible. This is what caused him to sweat drops of blood. This was the moment that Jesus feared the most. He did not fear the flogging or the ridicule or the spitting or the public humiliation or the nails in his hands and feet. You'll notice throughout the narrative here in Mark, there's not one time that Jesus utters a word. But yet when it comes to the point of the forsakenness of his father, he cries out. He cries out. What Jesus feared most was to be forsaken by his Father and to drink the cup of his Father's wrath that was due us for our sins. Jesus truly was forsaken, deserted by his Father. What kind of death do we deserve? Have you begin to see yourself in the narrative yet? Have you tried to put yourself there? It is our sin that required such horrible and gruesome death. We deserve a painful, humiliating, and deserting death. That's what we deserve. We deserve exactly what we've seen here. I want to make two points of application before we conclude. First, to you who are here and do not believe. If you refuse to bow your knee to Jesus, if you refuse to believe that his death is sufficient to cover your sins, you will one day die an eternally painful, humiliating, and deserting death. That's what awaits you. But God brought you here today to show you that you can be saved from this death because of the death that Jesus died. 
you can be saved. You can live with him forever. Where the light of God's glorious countenance and his blessing never ceases to shine. Seek the forgiveness of God today. Believe that his death was enough to cover your sin. Trust in him. Turn from your sins and follow Jesus. Secondly, to you who believe, seeing that Jesus has died this death for us, brothers and sisters, what should our response be as we leave this place? One line from a famous hymn that we sing often, I think, says it best. This should be our response. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Keith pointed it out as we sang. We sang words very similar to that. All we can do is offer up ourselves to you. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That should be the posture that we leave with. Immense, sincere gratitude and love for our Savior. Let us leave then living for the Savior who so mercifully and graciously died for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have simply scratched the surface of what Jesus suffered for us. And it is horrifying enough at that. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be upon us, creating genuine gratitude and thankfulness to Jesus for what he has done. The depths that you went to to redeem us should create an overwhelming love. Let it be so. And as we leave from here, would you make us more joyful Christians, more thankful more willing to offer up ourselves to you. I ask this all in the name of Jesus.